Welcome to Assignment, the official podcast of the Mountain View MFA program at Southern New Hampshire University. I'm Rebecca Dragon, alongside Jillian Kemmerer. So welcome back to another episode of Assignment Podcast. I'm here with Rebecca Dragon, as always, and we are so excited to have Joe Knowles, the esteemed member of Mountain View faculty, here with us. She's an award-winning author of the middle grade novel, See You at Harry's, Still a Work in Progress and Meant to Be. And she's also the author of the young adult novels, Where the Heart Is and Read Between the Lines, among many others, which is incredible. Um, so yeah, we're just so thrilled to have you here, Joe, and your cats. Our, our viewers, our listeners can't see it, but your cats are also present for us. Hi, thanks, Hi thanks for having me. <laughs> Hopefully they won't tear down my window shade while we're talking, but we'll see. <laughs> oh, I kind of hope they do. It'll be fun. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe, I'm so excited to talk to you and I, I, find you very, very interesting simply because you have so many kind of cool projects and, um, you know, you have your work with the, I think the center for cartoon studies and you have this new, um, venture revise and shine, which I definitely want to talk about, but I thought we would just kind of start by asking you how you got involved in Mountain View. Cause this is after all, the Mountain View MFA podcast. <laughs> so if you want to just give us a bit of your history with Mountain View, how you ended up here. Um, well, it's all thanks to Robin Wasserman, actually, who was on faculty uh, for several years. Um, she, when she joined, there was a lot of, there were a lot of students applying who wanted to write young adult fiction. And there wasn't really anybody on the faculty who had published or written young adult fiction. And so the director at the time um, asked Robin if she had any other colleagues who she thought might be interested in teaching. So that was how I luckily landed my job at Mountain View. I think it's interesting that there was this surge in people coming to write young adult fiction because I feel like we're seeing this big moment for YA and maybe some of it has to do with social media and the rise of book talk and I'm just seeing you know even authors using it to pitch books and signing huge contracts off the back of it and fans creating skits and becoming really involved in the universe of books that they're reading and I'm just wondering the extent to which that has impacted you as an author? Like, has social media changed the way that you think about marketing books or the way that you pitch them? Is it something that you're watching closely? Um, no. <laughs> I, <never laughs> <love that. laughs> I have the worst timing. So I haven't actually published a young adult novel in a fair number of years now. I keep sort of getting writing for younger and younger audiences. Um, except for this nonfiction adult collection I've been working on. So yeah, my timing is terrible because <laughs> I feel like just as I was sort of losing interest in writing YA, it, it social media took over and became this huge thing. So when I was writing YA, it was like everyone had a blog, you know what I mean? Um, it's very different now. But I, you know, I... I try not to follow the market. I don't even think about the market because when you're writing, you're always at least two years behind anyway, because 
that's how long it takes for a book to be both. Well, it takes years for a book to be written, but then you've got the the process of publishing a book with a traditional publisher takes at least a year, sometimes longer. And so by the time you have been like, oh, I'm going to, it looks like YA is really hot right now. I'm going to write a YA novel. Well, three years from now, when the book comes out, who knows what the trend will be. So I feel like it's kind of not the best strategy to, to try to do that. Um, but I don't, I suppose I'm unique in that. I don't really have a strategy. <laughs> I just, I try to really just tell the stories that are calling to me. Um, and so that's probably why I don't have one of those six figure deals. <laughs> I just, um, I, I really, I don't really think about my writing career in terms of the monetary stuff. Although, as you mentioned, Rebecca, um, you do need money to live. So um, <laughs> there's that. So I have started this company with a couple of friends called Revise and Shine as a way to just sort of earn a little income because one of the things that has happened um, to a lot of my books in the past three or four years is that they have all come under attack um, with this sort of right-wing, uh, I don't know what you would call it, campaign to ban books. Um, and so several of my books have been removed from schools and li public libraries. And they're not going to return. My sales have plummeted. A lot of people say, oh, when you have a book banned, you know, you're a you're going to be a New York Times bestseller. And it's like, no, that's only if you're already famous. Um, so so that has really hindered um, my book sales, but it's also had a huge impact on my school visit requests. So um, because I'm outspoken um, about book bans, uh, if, if any school is interested in having me come to their school, all they have to do is Google my name and they will see that I've been really outspoken about LGBTQI issues and things like that. And so they're like, oh, we do not want a controversial author coming to our school. So I basically, um, I used to get numerous, numerous school visit requests and, and that was part of my income. And now I think I have like two for the entire year. So um, obviously that's having a huge impact on my, my, um, the way I make my living. So we're trying this new venture to try to make up for it. I know that you've been, I mean, I know that you've been very outspoken, as you said, on that matter. And I was wondering if you could go a little bit more into depth about maybe some of these specific circumstances of where a book of yours has been banned and what the objections are and what your response is to them. I just think like to get a picture of actually what's happening you know, as, as my kids are older and I'm not as much in, involved in hearing these conversations as much, you know, what, what does this look like to you as an author? Like, what are these conversations that are happening? Um, well, there is definitely sort of a targeted type of book that's being sought after. Um, one is anything to do with uh, people of color and their stories and our history that there is definitely a campaign to try to erase that. Um, and then there's also the LGBTQI plus content, which is where my books fall. Um, and so the way that things happen is, so we have the the, the anti like CRT crowd, um, and then there's also the anti 
gay crowd, <laughs> anti-queer crowd, and um, both have sort of come together to 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 create this just horrible wave of removing thousands of books. Uh, the Pen, Pen, Pen America just published, I think it was yesterday, I got an email saying that book bans have gone up by 33% in the US just in the past year. That's just, that's just huge, you know. Um, and so it's definitely targeted. It's very easy to find books that have certain content because like you could just go to Goodread or Amazon and do a search for like books about a certain subject or that have certain content, like queer content. And then they'll, they'll get it there. There's their list. Okay, we're gonna put this on our list of books to be banned. Are these books in my child's school? They are, okay. And now I can, you know, go and ask for them to be removed. And it, all it takes is one parent um, to make a complaint and then the book is taken off the shelves for quote review the parent this is the other part that's really frustrating is that they're not really required to say explicitly like what they object to they can just say inappropriate material and that's all that they have to say and then it's put mm -hmm. aside for review well now you're taxing these librarians and people on the committees that are if they even go through the formal process hours upon hours to read these books figure out what might be controversial. Um, and now, like, not only that, but librarians are being put, like, some are being doxxed on Facebook, their addresses are being given, they're, you know, they're just being piled on and threatened. So I went to a conference for, excuse me, for children's librarians in Maine uh, several months ago, and there was a session on um, book banning and what librarians are going through and like most of the people in the room were in tears and talking about how afraid they are both for their jobs and for their safety for their kids safety like some of them their kids were being bullied in school because their moms are librarians like what where have we come like it is I, I don't know that the general public is really aware of just how bad this is getting um, but it's it is bad um, and, you know, some people like if whenever I post about this um, on like Twitter or somewhere, people will find some sort of excerpt in a book that if taken out of context, just sounds like, mm, yeah, I guess that does sound a little sketch. I don't know, like, um, you know, like a sexual description or something like that, which I don't think sound, I, I'm all for like being as honest as possible when we're talking about these things. But um, so it's taken out of context. Then we're called groomers, right? Then we're like accused of all this stuff. And it's just, it's crazy. Um, it's it's scary. And it's mostly though, it's just really sad, you know, um, because I, I know the impact that this has on kids. So, um, you know, when I was still doing school visits, for example, one of the last big conferences I went to, it was like a this wonderful writing conference with hundreds of middle schoolers and high schoolers who want, who liked writing. Um, and I gave like a keynote about my life as a writer and why I write the kinds of books I do. And I gave several of these talks and every single time a kid basically said the same thing, but this one particular child who was probably an eighth grader, um, she waited in this line to come up to me and like have her book signed or whatever. And she just, she was shaking and she said, um, I just, I, she handed me a note 
because she was so nervous that she didn't want to say it out loud. And I have it right above me. It's on my bulletin board. And it says, thank you for saying things no one else will. Um, and so we know what she's talking about, right? And then she started crying and she said, I, I want to be able to come out to my parents, but I'm afraid of what they will say. I'm afraid they won't love me anymore. Um, and these were kids in line, like gathering around her and hugging her. And then we just formed this great big hug and we were all crying. This is the impact that taking away books. Think about this. This kid finally felt like seen and acknowledged for the first time in her life that she could come up to us, an adult, a stranger and say that to me. Um, because I, because she knew I understood because I had written a story about a kid just like her. Right. Um, and so to take those books away from kids like that, who are just figuring out who they are and feeling scared and confused, taking away that lifeline, uh, the impacts are so powerful. So that's what's happening. And I, I think we get caught up in talking about how it affects the author, which I do too, because it does affect me. But really what I try to focus on is the effect that this is having and going to have for so long on all these kids who now have no access to these books because they don't, kids don't necessarily buy their own books. Lots of kids first can't afford to buy their own books. The only access they have to books is their school library or their public library. Um, and so once those are gone, they're never coming back and it will take years for those things to be, to change again. So it really is tragic. I think it's devastating. And the extent, including this like assault of the librarians verbally, I mean, it's horrific, the consequences of it. And as you said, it's the kids that get hurt perhaps the most because of, of this formative space that they're in and how impactful, fiction exactly. can be for them and, and to understand that they're seen. And it makes me wonder if this is perhaps what attracted you to write in this genre in the first place. Like, did you come at it from this place of wanting to be impactful or, or how did you first decide that you wanted to write for a younger audience? Yeah, well, I think um, when I first started writing, I, I was or in my early 20s. I was you know, uh, probably 22 or 23 when I started my first novel. So it wasn't such a far jump from the, I was writing what I knew, which was my all I knew so far was my teen experience. Um, and I I had I, I write about what I've lived. So we'll just as I was saying earlier, I am an open book. Um, so I write about my own experiences as a way to figure them out myself, make sense of them, forgive and forget, you know, I, I find that writing can be so therapeutic, but also I just, I know that I'm not the only one. And so I'm writing stories because just as a kid who reads a story about a, someone that they relate to, they feel less alone. When I tell these stories, I feel less alone. When I feel a connection with an audience, I and when people start nodding at me, I know, okay, you get it, don't you? Like, and I just feel, okay, finally, and I know someone else has gone through this too, and now we're having this conversation, and now we feel connected. And I think the very first time this happened to me, I was an undergrad, at Simmons University, and I had written a personal essay about um, my parents had been going through some financial struggles and we, our house was going to be foreclosed on. And I had gone home for the weekend from college, um, uncertain if I would even be able to stay in college. 
uh, to label things that I didn't want them to give away or try to sell at a yard sale when they had to leave the house and help them pack up and everything. And I came home from being at a friend's late one night and the house was really dark, but I could hear music in the living room. And so I kind of snuck around to see like what was going on in there. Uh, and my parents were dancing in the dark in the living room. Uh, and it was this very powerful moment for me as a moment of like, you know, hope <laughs> that like, yes, the walls are literally like falling down around us, but my parents are still this moment of strength. They're this symbol of strength for me. And so I wrote an essay about that called Living Room Music. And I, my teacher was very impressed and said I should submit it to this literary magazine, which I did, and it was accepted, but I didn't know, and I was extraordinarily shy. I know people at residency can tell because I always talk about how fretful I am when I have to do my faculty readings, but um, I had to go and read this essay to, you know, this big audience at the college with faculty and students, and I was 19 years old. Um, but when I, so I just, you know, I read it and I never looked up. I was just so nervous. But when I did look up, there were several people, especially in the front row, crying. And it was that moment I was just talking about. I was, I was so, I felt such connection in that moment. And also it was the first time I felt like I had a voice. I was, I grew up as such a shy kid. I, it was probably the first time I ever even used a microphone. Um, and here I was like telling my story and people had heard it and they were reacting to it. And it, it was so empowering. Um, and it made me feel human. It made me feel so seen and listened to for the first time. And I think that was my that was it. That was the writing bug, right? Like I thought, oh, this is how I have a lot to say. Just because I'm shy doesn't mean I have a lot to say. And now I know how I can say it. And that's through writing. Uh, and so that's so I went to graduate school and started writing. So um, this is a long roundabout answer to your question. But I, I think there are pivotal moments in my own life that I had lots of material to write for and they all happened to be sort of in that teen angst category. So it was just like a natural place for me to write. But I also loved young adult literature. Um, I have a master's degree in children's literature and um, I really wanted to be a children's book editor. So, so it just felt like a natural fit. I, I find young adult literature to be so powerful. Um, one of the hardest things to write, I think too, because you, you really have to be extraordinarily honest because because your YA readers know when you're not being honest um, and sincere. And so I, I just, I loved that age group. And, um, but I feel like I've sort of written about all of my, all of my issues. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel really at peace with the stories I've told. Um, so I'm just, I'm always looking for new challenges and new new areas to explore. So I did that with my first picture book and I'm doing it now with writing these adult fic, not, adult nonfiction essays. Um, so I was wondering, I, I've heard you tell this story before and I think it would bleed nicely into this, but I'm wondering if you tell us the story of publishing your first book. I, I feel like I heard you, you wrote, you took a chance, I think, and sent a letter to someone, or I remember you, would you mind telling that story? It's such a fascinating story. And <laughs> unlike other, like, first book stories I've heard in the past. Yeah, um, 
So my favorite author when I was a teenager was Robert Cormier. He wrote The Chocolate War and <clears throat> other books, most banned books in the country, books. <laughs> uh, I was so drawn to him. He, in fact, he's the reason I became like a reader. I didn't really like reading until I read his book. And it was so raw and honest and gritty and, you know, writing realistic fiction. It It was the first time I read, you know, a few pages and thought, oh, this author tells the truth which is what I was getting at earlier, where he doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. This world, at least, is the world I know. So before that, like, I love Judy Bloom. I love all the classic authors, but the, their worlds were a world that I wanted to be a part of, but never could. Um, you know, my family financially struggled a bit, and I just, it didn't look it didn't feel real. It felt like a like the TV world to me. But Cormier's world was dark and and bad things happen, just like in my life. And the way that they happened happened similarly. You know, in my high school experience, bullies, teachers were bullies. And that's the same in his book. And I thought, finally, someone is actually saying what it's really like, right? So I just found so much inspiration in his work. Um, and so I always wanted to write like Robert Cormier. Uh, and then when I was in grad school, he was speaking, he was going to be a guest speaker at, at our, at the college. And I was so excited and also so nervous to meet him. But uh, I went up into the signing line and he saw, I had just graduated actually, but I was working at the college. Um, he saw on my name tag that I had just graduated because it had my year. And so he wanted to know what my thesis was on. And I told him that I had written my first young adult novel and he just lit up. He's like this super sweet little old man. Like everyone would always say about him. I can't believe this guy writes what he writes because he seems like, like little grandpa or whatever. Um, not to stereotype, sorry. But so he's like the sweetest guy. And he, so when I told him that he just lit up and he wanted me to tell him about it. And then he wrote his address in my book, in the book that he was signing for me. And he said, when you finish this, when you finish revising it, send it to me. And this is like, this is an extremely famous author, right? This is, I mean, just the fact that he did this was so incredibly generous. And um, I, as I said, I had just graduated. I had just moved um, with my my boyfriend, now husband, away. Like I was, I was in this very quiet but busy and stressful time in my life. And the one thing that kept me going was that when you finish, send it to me. And so, even though I was working a full time job that I hated, <laughs> I was just like on the wheel already. I kept going home late at night and working on this novel because. Robert Cormier said he would read it. Uh, and so I did send it to him. And then like six months went by and I thought, oh, he's just this nice man who says that to everyone and he doesn't really mean it. Um, but then I got a, I got my manuscript in the mail not long after that. And it was, he had written this sweet letter. Not only that, he said, I have, I liked this so much that I sent it to my editor at Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. Um, and I, I just couldn't believe it. And then lo and behold, I came home from work one day and there was an, this is like in the olden days when we had answering machines and there was Frances Foster on my answering machine with her wonderful British accent telling me I was brilliant and she wanted to talk. Um, so that was the start. That was the start of everything. And 
sadly, it's part of the story that you got wrong, Rebecca, which is fine, is that they did not buy my book. Um, we went back and forth a couple of times, but like literally this was my first book. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to revise, like really revise, which is like rewriting everything and, and rethinking everything once you've got that first draft. Um, she helped me see that, but in the end, she was just like, keep writing, join a writing group. She gave me all these life lessons, life tips for how to become a writer. And so I did all the things she said, and eventually I did sell the book, but that's how it got. I never, I don't think I ever would have even pursued writing or continued if not for the encouragement of those two amazing people in the beginning. Like they just saw something and I, if I look back at that work now, I think, oh my, I cannot believe I sent this. I can't, <laughs> I'm like horrified. But they were these kind souls who just saw, you know, this, they saw something and they encouraged me. And I, so now I try to do that with my students. I, if I see something, I try so hard to be encouraging because the the thing about writing it can be such a long road to publish your book. It, you know, it took me 10 years to sell my first book from, you know, from really like just starting and not to say, oh, I was submitting something every day. I wasn't like, I, you know, I had works with editors for one editor had my two of my manuscripts for over two years. So it's not, it's a weird, weird process. Um, I encourage everyone to get an agent. So that does not happen. I didn't have an agent. So I just let her keep stringing me along and feeling hopeful. Um, so, you know, everybody's path is different. And just because it might take you longer to sell your first book doesn't mean you're any less talented. It means it could mean, I feel like in my case, the world was not ready for my first book, Lessons from a Dead Girl, which was very controversial. It's on the American Library Association's most banned books list. Um, you know, I, it took the publisher who did buy it they took a risk by by publishing that book. They knew that it would probably get challenged, but they also knew that it was an important story to, to share with the world. And I, and I think it has been, um, you know, I have, I have made so many connections with readers over that book. Even last week, um, this woman came up to me and told me, I wish that when I was a kid, this book was available to me. And then she told me this heartbreaking story about a, a, her best friend who confessed to her that she was being sexually abused, but that the person that was abusing her, her stepfather told her, if you tell anyone, I will leave your mother and it will be your fault. And they kept, they kept that secret quiet and the abuse continued. And she said, if I had read your book, I would have known that I could tell someone this is what I'm saying. Like, this is the power of stories. This is, we tell stories because, you know, a lot of times we tell stories because we don't want them to be repeated. Um, we tell them because we don't want anyone to go through what we went through or what our characters went through. Um, we want to tell them to make connections with other kids to say, you're not alone. This happened to me too. Let's talk. How can I help you feel safe? All those things. And again, like when these books get removed, that there goes that opportunity. Um, and these poor kids are left in the dark and it's, it's just heartbreaking, but it does take a publisher now willing to take those risks. 
Um, and I, you know, in the, at the same place where I was speaking, a woman in the back raised her hand and she said, she didn't say the publisher, but she said, I work for a very large publisher in the nonfiction department for like putting together, um, you know, book history books and things like that for kids. And she basically admitted that they have been questioning the level of content that they're including in these books now um, because they're afraid that they that there are several schools that will not purchase them if they include certain types of history. And I, I mean, I would like to say I was shocked, but I was pretty devastated that this is where these book banning things are headed. Um, so yeah, I, I again, long answer. <laughs> Sorry, I don't think I, I don't even know if I answered your question. But anyway, um, I, I'm sad that it keeps circling back to these book bans. But I think, you know, as writers, when we're writing something um, that's really meaningful to us, this is it's going to be meaningful to other people, too. And it might be threatening to other people. And so um, you have to, like, sort of make this personal decision. Like, is it worth it? And I, I think it always is. And I think too, so we at Mountain View have had the pleasure of previewing some of your nonfiction work that you've been working on. And you're once again, hitting on a subject that not a lot of people are talking about and probably a lot of people need to hear. So I'd love to hear a bit more about this journey you've taken in nonfiction. And as someone who you, you were moving and you've done nonfiction before, obviously, but moving from fiction to nonfiction, I'm moving from journalism to memoir. Owning vulnerability on the page has been really hard for me. And I would just love to hear how you've been working through that because it's something that I find I'm, I'm struggling with every day when I'm writing. Yeah. Oh, and I love listening to your work, by the way, Julian. Um, Why? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel... Um, so I'm writing these essays about my and my husband's experience living with my in-laws who rapidly declined both physically and mentally. And we were their primary caregivers all through the pandemic. And then we, we, um, we ushered them into their death um, and as best we could, but it certainly wasn't, it wasn't the best. Um, and it was just really painful and difficult. And we are both extremely traumatized by the whole experience. And I think we both felt like, why didn't we know this experience was like this? And it's because no one talks about it. Just like all these other things that are sort of taboo. Like it, it just feels like the 1950s cancer where it's like you whisper it, but you know, what death looks like, what old age looks like, what the failing body does, um, all of these things. I just, we were so unprepared. And um, of course, my back to my old, probably not the best therapy therapy method is writing about it. And it, I felt such this urgency to um, write about our experience. And I don't know that I necessarily felt the urgency to share it yet, but just to like my way of like just sort of processing stuff is writing about it. And I feel like I'm leaving it a little bit on the page, but I, but it's, it's bit by bit. And so I have not been able to let go because I, I still, there's still more to tell. And so I think that's why these essays turned into like a series of essays. Um, and of course the faculty keep joking, how's that memoir going? I'm like, it is not a memoir. It is a series of essays. 
because uh, I don't really think I want it to like I can't belabor it. I I want it to be this short thing, <laughs> this short piece that people can read in one sitting and then move on. Just like I want, I desperately want to be able to move on, but I can't until I finish telling the whole story. Um, and for for all the nonfiction, but also fiction people too who are listening. Um, a friend of mine gave me this advice a bazillion years ago about writing and when when to know if you're done with your story or even how to feel done with your story. And that is to ask yourself if it's true yet. And for me, like the, tr what is, what does that mean? The truth, right? Like not the literal truth, but did you tell the story that you need to tell? And did you set, did you tell the hardest parts of it? Did you go to the places that you really need to go to, to make it real, to tell all of it? Um, and that means telling the ugly parts and possibly the parts that maybe you feel a bit ashamed about um, or embarrassed about or whatever it is, depending on what you're writing. Um, and so for me, that's that has been difficult, partly too, because this new area of writing nonfiction, you know, in fiction, you can you can just make the people that you're writing about, you can give them different personalities and qualities. And now that that's not that's not my mom, that's this other person. <laughs> um, but in nonfiction, you you literally have to tell the truth. But also, you need to you're thinking about the people you're writing about. Um, and I even though Pat and Lou are no longer with us, I want to tell a story that respects them in the way that they deserve. These people were such extraordinary people and I want to honor who they were before they came to us. Um, and so it's difficult. I said to my husband, I, I, I just, I can't imagine what your mom would think if she knew I was writing this. And he said, she would be horrified. There's no question. She would be horrified. She'd be embarrassed. She'd be sad. She'd be ashamed. But then she would also insist that you write it because it's it's something that she probably would not want other people to experience. And again, <clears throat> like everything else, until we start writing about the truth and what things really look like and what things really feel like, nothing is going to change. <laughs> Um, and so that's sort of where this urgency to write this comes from, because I know so many people now are like, oh, we'll just have my parents will come and live with us and it'll be this beautiful experience, which is what we thought. Um, and it was at first, but it quickly became an impossible situation for all of us and also just devastating. Um, and I wouldn't I, I don't. The, the hard part for me in this, this essay is that I don't know the solution. I, I don't think one exists in our country right now, unless you're extremely wealthy, um, which we are not. <laughs> so I, I, this is, I, again, I have gone in circles, Jillian, I'm sorry, I don't know if I answered your question, but um, this is sort of where these, the stories, I am just drawn to telling the stories that are so important to me, whether they become fiction or nonfiction. So that's sort of where I'm at right now. And I, I just desperately need to finish them. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, I just so when, you know, for all of you who are writing this stuff, I I do think you should be asking yourself that question. And maybe, you know, have I been true to myself? Have I been true to these characters? Um, and have I said the thing that makes this story really matter? Um, not only to me, but to whoever's going to read it. Yeah. So I love hearing you talk all about about that in particular, because I remember hearing your readings from this, these essays that you're working on and thinking, oh, right, this is probably the next stage in life, right? You have the the season of the weddings, then the season of the baby showers, and then you're talking some girlfriends through their divorces, and then the season of the divorce, and then there's the season of the parents are starting to get older, and what do we do? And um, And what I've always appreciated about you when I was in the program is it was really nice to know that there was someone that was kind of in the same phase of life as me. And I, this makes me think, I want to ask you about like writing as a mom, like writing as a mother, like what was your writing life like raising children and then teenagers? And now as, I mean, can I say empty nester? I mean, you're, you know, you're up and yeah. out, right? Um, yeah. I wonder if you had any thoughts about that for, um, you know, people in this phase of life, moms or parents, um, cause I do think it adds this extra dimension of something to our writing life. Yeah. Um, my son, you know, when I was writing young adult stuff, he was really little. And then I think we, our ship's paths passed <laughs> as he was becoming a teenager, I was starting to write younger and younger. So when he started um, high school, I wrote, I was working on, I think maybe my first like tween or middle school book. And then I wrote several after that. Um, and he's funny. Like he's, he's very proud of me. Um, and I know that he loves it when his friends are like, oh my God, that's your mom. I read her book, which is kind of cool, <laughs> but he's also like, don't write about me, respect my privacy and all this stuff, you know, um, which of course, is of legit like I wouldn't do that but um you know but of course I'm also like riding in the car driving the carpool and hearing the wealth of <laughs> material in the back seat and I actually kept a notebook because you know this friend said the funniest stuff and anytime there was like a pause one of his friends would be like are you gonna put that in a book and I'd like mm, can I <laughs> so I did always ask permission um, but yeah, I, I think it, it certainly added, um, it added some humor to my writing, which had up until that point been really serious. Cause I had mostly been thinking about my own childhood trauma. Um, and he watching him go through life, it was like this breath of fresh air to be around kids who are, you know, I mean, not that he didn't have his own, um, you know, challenges, but just sort of seeing how kids were living life and finding humor, even when they were struggling. I, I, I really tried to, my, I feel like my writing changed a lot from observing him and his friends. I, I feel like I added a lot more humor than in my work than had been there before. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the other thing is like juggling time when you're a parent and you have your, I had a full-time job um, as a professional writer. And then I had my baby. And then when do you write, you know, 
So it was like, I, I made a deal with my husband about like scheduling a certain time during the week that that was like my time where I could shut the door and I was not to be um, interrupted unless like we had to go to the hospital. <laughs> so, you know, I just made deals like that and he knew how important it was to me. And, and so we worked it out, but it, it's definitely hard to, to balance all that stuff when, you know, you can't, when you're first starting out, you, you can't really support yourself on your, on your work, on your books. So you have to have other ways of bringing in income. And so it's like the time, finding the time for all the different things. And that just means also like believing in yourself enough that it is worth the time. Like, is it more, is it better for me to go, you know, chill out <laughs> somewhere, like have a glass of wine and just like, I don't know, re read something or could I spend this hour, one more hour just writing, which, which is more important? Which should I do? Which, what does my body need? And, you know, even if you're exhausted, I think it's always more satisfying eventually to get those words down and, and then you can have a glass of wine after. <laughs> always a glass of wine after <laughs> you know it's like don't like but sometimes the wine is okay right so I feel like this conversation flew I mean thank you for being so open and honest and for all of our our listeners who want to learn more about you and and want to learn more about what you're writing and, and this platform that you're using to speak out about banned books where can they find you um oh it's like all the platforms are like dying uh well I'm on Instagram I'm on Facebook I'm on the formerly known Twitter although I don't really post yeah no don't go there um post blue sky all the you'll find me on all of those places um and my the business that I've started with a couple of dear dear wonderful very talented friends is called revise and shine and we offer editorial services um, for all genres and age groups. And then, but we're also trying to create a real writing community. So we're having monthly workshops and a book club for writers. So we're reading like writers and talking about the book in that, in that way. Uh, so it's, check it out. It's really fun. And most of it is free. So. That's amazing. Thank you again for coming on and chatting with us. We'll have to have you back on soon. Okay. Thanks. You too. Thank you, Joe. You can find the latest works of Assignment Magazine on our website, www.assignmentmag.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at assignment underscore mag and check out the official Twitter of the Mountain View MFA program at SNHU, which is just at Mountain View MFA.